Good evening, everyone, and welcome to The Real Science Exchange, the pubcast where leading scientists and industry professionals meet over a few drinks to discuss the latest ideas and trends in animal nutrition. Hi, I'm Scott Sorrell, one of your hosts here tonight at The Real Science Exchange, and welcome back to one of my favorite segments of our podcast program, The Legacy Series. Here we celebrate the pioneers of our industry, taking a look back at their research, their lives, and their impact on our industry. Tonight, we have the honor of memorializing Dr. Peter Van Soest. Dr. Van Soest passed away in March of 2021, but his influence and his legacy is felt every day in the animal nutrition field through his body of work and through the students he mentored. At the pub table tonight are three of those students who have gone on to illustrious careers of their own. Dr. Mary Beth Hall with USDA, Dr. Mike Van Amberg from Cornell University, and Dr. David Mertens with Mertens Innovation and Research. I want to welcome all of you to the Real Science Exchange tonight. And what I'd like to do is go around the table and get an idea of how um, each of you met uh, Dr. Van Soest. Dave, let's start with you. First, tell us what's in your glass tonight. And then tell us how you first came to know uh, Dr. Van Soest. And understand it started with a phone call. It did start with a phone call. And uh, I'm drinking rum, which uh, Peter would probably uh, be upset by because he was a scotch drinker. Um, Later on, maybe I can tell a story about uh, how he educated me about st uh, scotch. Uh, but uh, I was uh, fortunate enough to get a phone call from Peter in 1970 uh, when I was trying to select a place to go for a PhD. And I had uh, visited five different universities. And when I visited Cornell, Peter wasn't there, which <laughs> wasn't too surprising because over the over his time at Cornell, he did quite a bit of traveling, both domestically and international. Um, so I didn't get to meet him. And I actually had decided to go to the University of Illinois and work with Dale Ballman, who was there at the time. And uh, I was gonna let them know on Monday. And believe it or not, Friday afternoon, I got a call from Peter. He said, well, uh, I have an assistantship I would like to offer you to come here and work with me. And what, as I think back on it, I think is truly amazing about Peter um, was how much of an impact he made, how quickly, because this was 1970. He had published his methods for ADF and NDF from 63 to 67, and already I knew as a graduate student that he was a special kind of person. I had never met him, but he had a tremendous reputation by that point. We all knew what he had done. And uh, quite frankly, I was, a, I was a little frightened of maybe letting him down because I knew he was so brilliant. Uh, and I have to tell this story because it's, <laughs> it's kind of typical of Peter and my experience with him. So he says, uh, well, he says, I'd like to, to ask you two questions. And I thought, oh my God, he's going to ask me something about chemistry. And this is going to be a real short phone call. And so his first question was, do you like coursework? And I said, without hesitation, if I never take another course in my life, I'll be the happiest student you could imagine. And he said, good. He said, you do know here at Cornell, the committee decides your entire curriculum. He said, I will make sure you get out of Cornell with the least amount of courses as possible. That was a plus. Then his second question was, do you like lab work? And I said, well, lab work is what got me into thinking about 
going on to an advanced degree because I started doing lab work as an undergraduate, uh, working for graduate students uh, doing chemical analysis. And I said, you know, I followed recipes, but I always like to really understand what the heck I was doing. He said, great. He said, my requirement's going to be that you're going to have to spend as much time as possible in the lab with me every day. And because I was one of his first three or four graduate students, um, I was very fortunate and I spent some weeks, I probably spent 50 hours a week with Peter in the lab. And uh, I can tell you a lot of funny stories about our experiences uh, between uh, he had a he had a workbench right behind mine, and uh, but we carried on conversations throughout that whole time we were in the lab together, and it was probably well, it wasn't probably it was the most enjoyable research experience of my life. I just learned and learned and learned. So that's how I met Peter Van Soest. Uh, that's a great story, and I, I don't want you to forget to tell that Scotch story later on either. <laughs> so, uh, uh, Dr. Hall, this is your third time back at the Exchange. Welcome. Glad to have you back again. Uh, one of our favorites. Uh, you're our designated driver tonight, so, yeah. Hi. Okay. I am a federal employee. I've gotten uh, permission from the federal government to from USDA to participate in this podcast and so, yeah, I'm the designated driver, and Dave, Mike, I promise I'll drop you off at the correct homes. Okay. Uh, I'm, all, I'm already there. <laughs> already home. <laughs> uh, Mary Beth, how did you uh, first uh, get to know uh, Dr. Van Soest? My first meeting with Peter, um, in which I actually talked with him, it was actual conversation, um, is when I started back for grad school for my PhD at Cornell. I'd gotten my master's, had worked for six, seven years as a county extension agent, and I started to come up with questions about carbohydrates in dairy cattle nutrition. And so talked with Larry Chase about it. He worked extension and research. And I became a grad student with Larry Chase. And as we're talking about that part of the issue is that we didn't even have ways to measure some of the carbohydrate fractions that might matter. Uh, Larry said, well, let's go talk with Peter. And so we go up to Pete's office and I still remember he's there in his kind of worn jeans. I don't know if he was wearing his jean jacket at the time, maybe a t-shirt uh, surrounded. I think there was flatbread and, and, and maybe some hot peppers and maybe some yogurt containers in the office and books. And let's just say it wasn't neat, but the discussion we got into, we, we, we walked in, we said and described that was interested in the possibility of looking further at carbohydrates and how we might measure them. And he thought we could do that. <laughs> and we went on from there. Um, you know, and obviously things developed later. I, I ended up doing most of my most of my research work in Pete's lab, looking at ways to measure soluble fiber and what did pectins look like in different plants. And it was just from a very, very simple beginning, just that kind of, yeah, we can do that, uh, that, that it blossomed into being taught so much more. Hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. <clears throat> Mike, I already know what's in your glass. Um, so why don't you tell us about that? <laughs> And then, you know, tell us a little bit about uh, your life with uh, Dr. Van Seuss. 
Yeah. So I've got some scotch. Um, and matter of fact, I've got the scotch brand that I um, drank with Pete the first time we had scotch. I'll, I can tell a story about that later. Because um, he belittled it a little bit. But, <laughs> and Dave, Dave would understand that. Um, so how did I meet Pete? I, I uh, graduated from Ohio State with Scotty, actually. You're behind him. Uh, yeah, you're, you're two behind him. Oh, yeah. I owe. And um, we, um, I, I uh, worked in the industry for a while, met Dave Galton, met Charlie Sniffen, met Larry Chase, and a bunch of the extension faculty, and um, struck up a relationship. And after about five years of working in the field, I decided I need something else to do. So I came back to grad school, ended up here at Cornell, of all places. Didn't really know anything about Cornell um, as a Buckeye, <laughs> except for the fact that Van Seuss was here. Right. I remember Jack Klein at Ohio State. I took his nutrition courses and he would talk about this crazy professor up at that Ivy League institution that looked like a homeless person, but was a mad scientist. Right. And um, anyhow, I really enjoyed Jack's teaching and things like that. So I was a little interested in nutrition. Came here, um, Galton and Sniffen accepted me and then Charlie left. So I, I was I was with Dave, which was okay. But we went down this road with some nutrition. Started, you know, supposed to be a management question. Ended up doing a lot of nutrition, and working with the CNCPS, the very nascent CNCPS. And I'm asking really hard questions, and Charlie wasn't here. And one day, Galton, out of frustration, said, "I I don't, I don't really. I'm, this is not what I do." He says, "But I know somebody that does this stuff." I says, well, what are we doing? He goes, well, we're going to go up to the third floor. I'm going to introduce you to Pete Van Seuss. Okay. I'd heard about this guy before, right, from Jack Klein. So up the stairs we go. We, like Mary Beth, we walk in the office. The office is what Pete's office always was, kind of like mine in the background here. I can't throw too many stones. And um, he's got on his window, he's got one of Hans Young's papers, hanging there and he's got tracer paper in front of it and he's he's got his back to us because we walk in and and dave goes pete i want you to meet a new student mike van amberg i think you two would have a lot in common and pete's up there going okay just a minute i'm trying to you know give me a few minutes here i'm trying to get this and he kind of looks around says hi goes back and he spends another five to ten minutes rederiving this stuff um on the tracer paper um, Dave says, all right, I'm, I got to get back to doing whatever I do. So I just stood there quietly waiting for him to turn around. He sets the paper down, proceeds to explain to me what he was doing and why he was doing it. Right. I had no idea what the hell he was talking about at the moment. Um, and he says, what, what do you want to talk about? <laughs> I'm, I'm completely off guard at that point. And I said, well, I'm trying to solve, this is one of my problems. And he goes, oh, oh, well, that's, that's an interesting question. You got time for a beer? I said, not right now, but we can go, <laughs> go, go later. Um, so anyhow, we, we talked for a few more minutes and made a, an arrangement to go drink a beer and talk about science, and that's how it all got started. Oh, excellent story. We also have Dr. Clay Zimmerman back in the co-host seat uh, once again tonight. Uh, Clay, does Angry Orchard make a scotch-flavored cider? <laughs> they they do. They do not. So, <laughs> but somebody did send me some scotch. And I, okay. so, I, do, I do have some. Well, well, what is it? Uh, it's a Johnny Walker. 
<laughs> Johnny Walker. Okay. <laughs> Wouldn't have been my first choice, but okay. Uh, I know. I know. I got a McCallum. I do want to say I'm really looking forward to this this episode tonight. Uh, you know, I, I heard some stories at the Cornell Nutrition Conference back in October, and uh, we're off to a great start here, and I'm really, really looking forward to, to this episode. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I agree, Clay. And uh, in the interest of being in a virtual pub tonight, I'd like for us to raise our glasses to a, a very unique and influential man, uh, Dr. Peter Van Seust. Cheers, hey, everyone. Here, here. Cheers. Here, here. Ah. Tonight's pubcast toast is brought to you by Nitrisure Precision Release Nitrogen. Maximize room and microflora with the consistent release of Nitrisure to turn up the dial on rumen efficiency and productivity. Visit balchem.com to learn more. So, you know, we're very honored to have the three of you with us here tonight. As, as Clay mentioned, you've got some very rich stories. Uh, you, you just know, uh, you know, him very well. Van Seuss, the scientist, Van Seuss, the man. And so I'm I'm personally just looking forward to setting back, kind of melting into the, the woodwork, enjoying my scotch, and just listening to the stories. And so... If you're in the audience tonight, I think this is the time where you want to press the pause button. Not very long, just for a moment. Go get yourself a drink, pull up a comfy chair by the fireplace, and just sit back and enjoy the, the, the stories to come. Enjoy the evening with us. Dave, to get us started, um, you know, you gave a wonderful presentation last year at the Cornell Nutrition Conference um, as a memorial to Dr. Van Seust. Can you first give us an overview of the scientific impact that he's had on our industry? Uh, yes, I, he's, he's truly extraordinary in that uh, he, he really revolutionized our way of, of analyzing feeds from fiber and, <clears throat> and ultimately from an energy standpoint. Um, he, he started his career um, at uh, USDA ARS. Um, at that time, crude fiber was the method, the only method. Uh, there had been quite a bit of work done in the 1950s trying to come up with alternatives, none of which worked very well. Um, and uh, the person that hired him, uh, uh, a person by the name of Lane Moore, uh, hired Peter specifically and gave him, when Peter talked to me, gave him the mission of creating an alternative to crude fiber. And uh, I can't imagine any other person person taking such a mission statement and starting a career because um, it was daunting. I mean, crude fiber had been around 100 years and nobody had come up with a better thing. Uh, and not only that, Peter told me uh, and several others that early in his career, he was advised, you know, don't do anything in fiber because it's a dead end. Nobody knows what to do with fiber. But Peter and his own interesting way took some of the knowledge that he knew from biochemistry and his work at Walter Reed Hospital uh, and applied it to fiber and, and the, the breakthrough was actually using detergents to remove protein from feed so that you could measure fiber because protein is always a contaminant for fiber in, in most analytical systems. Um, and what's interesting is initially he set out to define the 
fiber that was undigestible. And at that point in history, everybody called that lignin. So the reason he came up with lignin and ADF first was in fact that he could find a fiber that wasn't digestible. And I think if you go back and read his early papers, you can see that that was his intent. Um, so ADF actually was just a prep step to measure lignin. But ADF was so much better than crude fiber that within, I'm guessing, less than five years, the predominance of papers in Journal of Animal Dairy Science were reporting ADF rather than crude fiber. I mean, it didn't take very long. Everybody knew crude fiber had problems. So that, and then he realized that ADF didn't measure all of the fiber that was important for ruminants. So then he developed the, the neutral detergent fiber method, which was much less um, caustic in its uh, uh, approach. So fiber is probably the thing, but I would say that his legacy goes a little beyond that in that he went on to try to understand why fiber varied in digestibility and made it for the first time clear to everyone that the reason dry matter digestibility varied was because the fiber in the dry matter varied and that the so-called soluble part was pretty digestible. And that was probably the other main thing that, that he came up with. Um, so from a, from a scientific standpoint, those are the things that we know uh, about Peter's contribution. And to be honest, at the way, at the way we're going now, it, his, his fiber methods may last for another 100 years unless we, unless we kind of change our outlook a little bit. But um, that was the big thing. But there's many, many other things we can talk about, and hopefully we will. But in my estimation, those, those are the things that really set us on a new direction, a new path in looking at herbivore nutrition um, throughout the world. Uh, Mary Beth, Mike, I don't know if you want to add anything else that you would say were his, you know, his primary contributions. That's a heck of a start, Dave. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, just, just the con, I mean, he, he went and applied the Lucas test. There actually was a, right. I asked him about it, define the Lucas test, and then I'll tend to tell the rest of the story. Well, basically, uh, Curly Lucas was a scientist at North Carolina, uh, actually a Cornell graduate, I found out later, uh, who uh, uh, was a statistician. And he, he wanted to look at feed analysis from a statistical viewpoint. And so his thought process was that, are there constituents and feeds that have a relatively high and constant digestibility? And the first Lucas test actually was postulated by a guy by the name of Mitchell back in the 40s uh, for protein. But if you plot protein content versus digestible protein content, you get a straight line with a slope of about 0 0.9, 0 0.95, which basically says the crude protein in most feeds, regardless of the source, is about 95% digestible across all feeds. And that's the Lucas test. And what Peter did was to apply it to neutral detergent solubles 
and point out that most of the soluble material, that's detergent soluble, I should say, uh, is almost completely digestible, uh, starch being one exception, but we can get into details later. Go ahead, Mary Beth. Okay. He, he, it also applies to lignin because lignin is indigestible. The opposite. The opposite. That's right. right. And, and, and actually, you know, I, asked, I had asked Pete at one point, what made you decide to work with the Lucas test? And it turned out that two statisticians from Lucas's shop down in North Carolina visited Pete over at USDA and recommended to him that he use this test for looking at, at the fiber system, at the system he was developing. And that brought us to the point where we had, um, where we have lignin and we have ND solubles. Now, one of the, I mean, but, but even beyond that, and, and I'm not sure if it's something that people always read into some of the things Pete wrote or not, is, you know, even to the point of his, of his death, Pete was thinking about what was working and what was not, what was a firm conclusion and what was not. And, and we got discussing this graph in this, 19, I think, a 1967 paper that showed ND solubles in the Lucas test and and how they agreed how how they were 90 whatever percent digestible and i said pete there there is variability around that line he says yes and, and so some of i mean even at that point he was saying that yeah tested correctly but that didn't mean they were all equal okay that that some other things needed to be considered so actually maybe through the students he trained and the students they train is one of Pete's legacies that I think rocks it is the notion that you don't just stop with what you have and say it's good enough. If more new information comes up or there are different observations, you consider them and you test them and you move on from there. I mean, he, he didn't rest on his laurels, which, which I found cool. And Mayor Beth, you talked a little bit about uh, the legacy that maybe, you know, his students uh, will leave. And, and uh, what, what kind of a teacher was he? I'm trying to go through the mental Rolodex of, uh, of adjectives. And I mean, the first one that came to mind is phenomenal. But I, I will. Pete was always very kind with graduate students. And he would work with a, a, us and his colleagues to help us understand different concepts. Um, but also watching him speak to people who weren't necessarily firmly in the science community, he'd also work to bring things to a level that they could understand. I mean, so he, he could drill down into what made the periodic table work, which got us all the way back to what we were seeing or how the chemistry was working and what could make it fail or work. Um, let, let me say he was an inspired teacher and he, I don't think he could stop himself if he tried. I, I watched him sit down with his daughter, Anne, and start teaching her about different land masses based on an atlas that he pulled off of his shelf at home. Um, I think it was something that he loved and that was close to his heart. Mike, what, what were your experiences with him there? 
Uh, well, yeah. So he he was, uh, as Dave Mertens would say, he was the consummate teacher. But um, I think what made him that way, it, he was just an extraordinary teacher. I think he was an extraordinary teacher because he had a mind. So what I learned about him, here's a story. All right, I'll, so this is an Easter. Mary Beth, I don't remember who all was there. There was about 15, 18 graduate students and others in the room uh, at, at our house we rented in Dryden. And he was there for dinner. We cooked dinner. Everybody ate. Uh, we had a fireplace. We went back, sat down. Um, he poured himself a glass of wine and said, Peter, I just got a new book on Mozart um, uh, by Maynard Solomon that maybe you might be interested in. So I went upstairs, I grabbed the book. I had read maybe 20 pages out of it at that point, And I thought it was interesting. I just, you know, was in the middle of my thesis work. So I wasn't really reading uh, extraneous stuff, but I handed it to him and I watched him and he, he, he just basically turned the page scan both pages turn the page scan both pages the book was about it's 568 pages he went through it in an hour and a half the entire book maybe a little bit longer than that went through another glass of wine but i, I kept watching him right and grad student everybody's kind of doing their own thing but he's just he's enamored by this book he finishes asks for another glass of wine and turns around and says, Mike, this is a really interesting book. I said, why is that piece? He says, well, it, it fills in a lot of gaps to the first authoritative book uh, written about um, Mozart, written by Al Alfred Einstein, which is Albert's cousin. And he proceeded to spend the next hour or more integrating those two books, line by line, life section by life section, you know, whatever he wrote, he just had it. It was right there. And that's, that's when I went... Oh, I understand you now, right? I, I can never understand having a brain that, you know, was not only photographic, but knew how to integrate everything in the moment. Yeah, completely. I, and and he's, I've got another story about that that he shared with me years ago. Well, that was my observation of him there. But what that, back to your question, Mary Beth, is being a teacher, that's that, that brain of his, that mind of his was really... That's the only way he could interact with people. You know, as John Van Sue said to me one day, he says, I don't even know if my dad ever said I love you more than three or four times to me in my life, right? He says, it took a long time for me to come to grips with how some of that, you know, my relationship with my dad. But the one thing I do know, you know, you know I've got other, you know, other things to share, but I, I see this in him, in Peter, is that he didn't know how to connect to you on that level, but his way of connecting to you was to share what he knew and bring you along in his world, yes. right? That was his way of showing you love, right? As much as Peter could do, right? He might hug you, but he wasn't going to be, you know, the loving kind of human being that, you know, like, you know, that some of us would, you know, want to see sometimes, especially for a parent figure. But he did that with everybody who wanted to learn. So if you engaged him, he mm -hmm. wanted to use that to help you, right? That was his way of giving of himself, and his way of, of sharing his love with you, whatever that, whatever term you might want to use. I couldn't agree more, Mike. And I, I want to make a comment here too. Mike deserves a lot of credit uh, in helping Peter in his later life uh, by keeping him actively involved in education with grad students and having grad students come out to Peter when he can no longer go <laughs> to Cornell. Uh, and quite frankly, Mike, I, I, I 
I want to compliment you on because I think you know, but I certainly observed how important that was to Peter because Peter was lost, quite frankly, if he couldn't teach you. I mean, I, I, mean, I shouldn't say it that way because he could keep his mind busy doing other things. But I agree with you. What he truly loved is sharing things with you. And um, for me, I, I was lucky. I, I had him a lot one-on-one, -on -one, uh, more so than most grad students after me. And for me, he was like Socrates. Uh, <laughs> he, he, he didn't. He didn't. He didn't lecture me. He he kept asking me questions, you know, and then yes. he wouldn't give me the answers, you know, and and I had to come up with answers, and then. You know, and he never would say, well, that was the stupidest thing I ever heard. Never, never, never said that. He would say, well, I think, why don't you go read this paper, you know, and I'd go read the paper and come back and then we'd have a very thorough discussion. But it, with me, we we had those kind of dialogues where it was a question and answer thing, and, and I treasure that. What I found fascinating with, with him as a teacher, and there's a story, you had to be careful because he could go off script really quick. Okay, so I took his ruminant nutrition course the second time he taught it. Well, the first time I could imagine that the graduate students were thoroughly mystified as to what the hell he was talking about. So he made written notes. So he had written notes by the time I took it the second time. Well, so we had the notes, but all of a sudden Pete would start writing stuff on the blackboard, but then he starts thinking, okay? And all of a sudden he'd be thinking something way outside of what this lecture was supposed to be about, okay? But he'd just keep going, and it got to be kind of a funny situation because Peter and I had talked about all this stuff in the lab one-on-one. -on -one. So the grad students would come to my office and say, what was he talking about today? It had nothing to do with the notes he gave us. And I said, well, it's because he, he got started thinking about this and that reminded him of, of this. And then we, he wanted to fill that in. So I became kind of an interpreter for the other graduate students because he would typically just go off script. If he started thinking, you, you had no... You had no idea where it was going to end up. You just knew it was going to be a great time and you were going to learn a heck of a lot about something that you had never thought of before. So that was kind of fascinating, but it kind of made it very difficult, you know, in a formal lecture structure. But, um, but Dave, Dave, that that's what going out to beer with Pete was all about or going amen. up to the hilltop floating in inner tubes and drinking beer. I mean, there were these rolling discussions that could wander anywhere, and, yeah. and they were fabulous. Um, and, and that's the thing. I mean, if what you describe with Pete um, is actually one of the things that was delightful. I mean, in the lab, like as you describe it, you know, working in the lab, you'd say, Mary Beth, come over here. I have something to show you because he was working on his own projects. And I got to learn more about chemistry and so forth there when we're talking about history or science or what have you, you'd find out more. But, but I, I tell you what, there is, there's one other compartment besides the teaching for how Peter related, but, but it might have been teaching um, in its own way. His daughter, Anne, 
was also is also gifted musically. And, and Pete's heart well, was also in classical music. He played the recorder. Um, he had dyspraxia, which means right hand, left hand coordination wasn't going to happen too easily. So the piano was out. Um, I can't remember where she said they were living. It was while he was on sabbatical, I think. And the way he would greet her as she was coming home from school was blasting this one piece of classical music out into the street to greet her as she came home. So, you know, there, there, there are also other dimensions that I, I think family saw that, that grad students didn't. Um, fascinating. But I, think, but I think he, you know, he, that was what was fascinating about him. He, he let you in on those things. Um, I'll never forget the first time I went to his house uh, for a get together. And at that time, I think there was only about four of us graduate students. And uh, the, the first thing that I will say is I, uh, his, 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 his wife had to have a forbearance that was unimaginable because by the time Peter got done in the kitchen, there wasn't a pot and pan that was still left in the same place because he took them all out to find the one he wanted. Um, he almost set the house on fire with the grill, uh, <laughs> which was another interesting experience. So he's going to grill steaks for us. So he's got the grill sitting on the deck under the overhang. And of course, he's starting to write the charcoal. It's not going fast enough. So he grabs a can of lighter and he just like that. Well, flame going up all the way up the, the uh, paint starting to scorch and he <laughs> grabs the thing by a leg and he holds it out like this walks down the stairs sets in line singed off his eyebrows most of his whiskers are singed and proceeds to put the steaks on and cook them i mean as if well this happens every day you know that's no big deal the other thing i remember about that it just just shows you the way his mind thought. So at the end, we're having ice cream. And of course, Peter takes it directly out of the freezer and it's like a rock. And he's got one of those metal scoops with a, the round scoop on the bottom. And he's trying to dig ice cream out for us. Well, his very first scoop, he's digging like this and it pops up and the ice cream flies up in the air comes down and lands right in one of our bowls. And Peter just looked at that like, how the hell did that happen? You know, I mean, it, he was in awe of how could that happen? You know, I mean, it, that's just that's just the kind of the way he he was. And I think that was what made him so special to me is his his curiosity was insatiable. I mean, any little thing like that, he'd sit there and you could see the little gears were like, how, how much force did I do and how did the angle work that that would, you know, do that? I mean, I, that was kind of going through his head. You could just see the wheels turning. But um, he shared music with us graduate students and I grew up with no classical music. Uh, I just found that fascinating, but geology, he loved, he loved, he loved all kinds of plants. 
the story I told at the Cornell Nutrition Conference that I have to relate actually relates to my wife because we met while we were at Cornell and I took her to one of these famous Pete parties. <laughs> and of course, she, I think she might have been the only female there. Uh, so she and Pete were off talking. And when I took her home that night, she said, please don't ever leave me alone with him again. And I said, why? She said, he's so brilliant. He's scary. He said, I don't want to say anything stupid. And I said, you, you can't say anything really stupid. Peter just loves to teach stuff. Okay. Cause she said something about oatmeal and she got a 45 minute lecture on fiber and oats. Okay. So, so I said, you know, you just, you just got to go with the flow. He's, he's not intimidating. He's not scary. Well, she's, so the next party, she said, you got to stay by me because I do not want to be left alone with Peter. Okay. Okay, so I'm staying real close, and I can tell Peter's kind of keeping an eye on the two of us, and finally I had to go to the bathroom, so I said, okay, I'm going to the bathroom. Sure enough, I come out, Pete and Carolyn are gone. Well, I start looking around, where are they? Well, they're outside. I thought, well, it seemed to be getting along okay. I'm just going to stay out of this, okay, and see how it goes. So that night we're, we're going back to her place and I said well how did that go and she said well she said it was fascinating she said I made a comment about a rock that was in his rock garden and he started telling me all about what it was chemicals it was made out of and the fact that it was drunk down here by a glacier from Canada and one of the oldest rocks on the earth's crust and she said then I said something about a flower and he started telling me all about colors and why flowers had different colors and what they were made of. And I said, and she told me, she said, now I know why you admire this man so much. And I said, yeah, because I said, that's just the way he is about everything. And I, so I think Mike made the good comment. I think he had to teach. I think that was, in fact, the way he related to people. Thank God it was for all of us that were got to know him because uh, I have never met anyone quite like him uh, in that regard. And I wanted to let Mike know that I sure appreciated him bringing the grad students out because Peter really looked forward to that. He really did. And um, I think that that's another one of his, his legacies. I think his, his book, um, is a part of that teaching legacy. He wanted to get it all written down uh, so that others could share it. And I'd certainly recommend to anyone and everyone uh, just pick up that book and go to a random chapter and you're going to learn things that <laughs> you never thought about. And it just shows you how a great mind kind of thinks about stuff. Dave, where can you get that book? Uh, I don't, Mike, is it still, uh, can you still get it through Cornell? You can. Most of the time, our students just get it off Amazon. Okay. Okay. <laughs> or any uh, place that you can. There's some used versions out there, not too many. Um, the, the, that's the textbook. The lab book is a print on demand at Cornell. So his lab book that we got put into a book format is, um, is uh, print on demand. But you can order that, too. It has an ISBN number, so it's all, it's well documented. 
Mike, I understand there's some lectures that you guys have digitized and are going to make available to the public. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, Scott. Um, so uh, the last couple of years that Pete taught um, here, and then he came back, right? He, he, um, his last year of teaching was 1995. Um, in 94, 95, he did some lectures in 96 for the, for the, um, the 403 class. Um, then he did some other lecturing, but, you know, mostly consistent with the two courses that he, the three courses that he taught here. Um, so a couple of enterprising grad students um, videotaped those and cataloged them. They, um, I got them all collected in a box and that box has been sitting either in my office or in the vault right outside my office uh, since that time. And, you know, about every two years, I'd look at uh, whoever was here as my administrative assistants and say, okay, how do we get these things digitized, right? And, um, you know, we'd go through the, the process here at Cornell and, you know, the library and all that kind of stuff and the archives. And it got to be, it was always too pricey. And um, here, you know, right after Pete died, you know, I had been trying to do this, but we had about the same time we had identified this guy in Rochester who's absolutely amazing, has a tremendous business, does a lot of business with Hollywood, actually taking a lot of the old uh, stuff and transcribing it into modern technology. Um, really cost effective. Um, in fact, we were just exchanging emails today. He's got it all digitized and transferring it to some hard drives. So we've got Great. 70 lectures, either his 605 class or his 403 course and a few from the 613 course. Um, and uh, we've got the periodic table lecture, which was always a, a big hit here on campus because the chemists would come down and listen to that. And um, <laughs> Well, we would move the class to 146 because the room would fill up, right? And that's highly unusual for something like that. So anyhow, those are those are all um, recorded. We've got his uh, when we did a retirement party, when we did the we did a symposium for him at Cornell Nutrition Conference. That was all recorded. Those are all digitized now, so that will be part of the collection. And a few other things that I found that I thought would be fun. So anyhow, that I'm not going to talk about yet. But anyhow, that will all uh, go online. I think at this point, uh, the easiest thing for me to do is to tack them on to the CNCPS website, give it its own name, make sure that people can get to it. Uh, we're trying to, you know, there are, the, the last bit of information is how do we get it? Or the, the, I'll share is that we're just trying to figure out a way that everybody can get there, see what it is, know the name, and then be able to click on it and, and watch it consistently. We set it up. So if somebody truly thinks they want to, I'm trying, we were trying to avoid this, but if they truly think they want to watch it on a device like this, we think we got the bit rate correct so they can do that. Mm. Um, but if they want to see it on a big screen like we're looking at now, then I, I, it, it'll definitely do that. So anyhow, we hope to have those up and running here, uh, I hope by March. So I think that'll be fun. Mary Beth, we've done, we've talked a lot about uh, Dr. Van Soost as a scientist, as a teacher, um, and I'm not sure we can separate it, but how would you describe him as, as a man, his humanity? Um, would that be any different than, you know, the scientist and the, and the teacher? Well, go, going back to the earlier comments, you know, I, uh, again, Pete was a consummate teacher and he was always in teaching mode, I think. One of the stories that comes to mind that's something slightly different than anything in the lab and anything to do with teaching proper. Um, 
you know, Pete would go out with the graduate students. Uh, as he was heading towards retirement, Pete probably be out with us more than any of the other faculty members. And, um, and a lot of times we'd head up to the hilltop and there's a lot of beer drinking, floating in inner tubes and so forth. And, um, and I was doing some fishing at the time and there were bluegills in the pond and uh, struck up a deal with Pete that if I caught the fish, he would clean and cook them, which is a pretty sweet deal. Um, and so there I'd hand him the bluegills He'd gut them, he'd, he'd cut them up, he'd set them up so that they could be cooked over an open fire, stuff them with garlic and fennel seeds. And I tell you what, nothing better on an evening with friends, hanging with Pete and, and folks and having bluegills. Um, you know, as a friend, you know, it's not, it's kind of like what, what was mentioned earlier. You know, there, there typically wasn't anything overt where he'd say, how are you doing? But, but there'd be some subtle things around the edges where he would try to help. Um, and maybe some of it was a distraction into some other topic to get you away from, from what you were thinking about. I found him, but in the years before Pete died, I was visiting him over at his house and a lot of the talk was science and we ended up working on like the last paper he got published, he, Mike Barry and I um, were, were working on it. And after we had set things aside for the day and, and, and Mike Barry headed home, you know, he would pull out a book and start talking to me about kind of the evolution of language and old English and, and so forth. And I think maybe Dave alluded to it earlier that maybe a version of Pete's friendship was introducing you to part of his world. I mean, the teaching did that on the subject matter basis, but, but things like language and things like music and so forth, um, I think that's where his comfort level was to, to trying to bring people something that he also cherished. And, and I mean, that's the way I looked at it. I think Mary Beth made a comment earlier. Uh, yes, Pete, Pete was not kind of a loving family member kind of person. Touchy-feely, no. Yeah, he no, wasn't, no, no. yeah. But what was amazing about him is that he could relate to almost anyone. Yeah. I mean, you you know, I, some of the most interesting things for me was um, in a meeting in, in Sicily where they kind of wanted to have a, a case study situation. So took a whole group of farmers out on a farm with Peter there. And just to watch him talk to those farmers uh, about forage quality and dairy nutrition, and just the, the attention he got. I mean, he was interesting. <laughs> he, he was always interesting. And he he loved to relate to people, uh, but I think it was it was always at the level of ideas, intellectual. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, you know, wouldn't you say so, Mike? I mean, even with grad students, I mean, it it wasn't like close personal. At least I didn't have a close personal relationship with him, but I loved him like a father. I mean, yeah. Would you say, 
Yeah, I, I've got some other experiences since we lived together for a few years. <laughs> <laughs> I'll bet. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, no, no, that's just that's just how he approached everybody, right? That's who he. Okay. It's just who he was. That's how, how he. That was that was him. Well, it was yeah. all. It was mostly intellectual. I mean, he could be cantankerous. I can tell you, he was. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. He could be a difficult guy, and I I lived with some of that. I don't. I won't go into all of it, but yeah, boy, there were moments where it's like, all right, Van Seuss, you got to go find your own space. I got to find my space because neither one of us are going to survive this one right now. And um, but at the same time, most of that, you know, most of that was from a caring perspective. It was never mean spirited. Mm. Um, yes. Except maybe once or twice that I saw that had you know the things that I won't share, but. But for the most part, it was always from a caring perspective. Yeah. 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 I don't think he had a. I don't think he had a mean bone in his body, right? Yeah, in and reality. I don't think he carried grudges either. Only towards I mean, Hans Young. And, <laughs> no, and, and, and and at least one other USDA employee, not myself. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. Well, yeah, they, I can think about yeah. it. I have to make a comment about that because he always referred to those idiots on that paper that got his ire up. Unfortunately, my name was on that paper. And so I went up to him. I said, Peter, you do know that uh, my name's on that paper, too. He said, well, I know why you didn't. I don't mean you, you know, <laughs> but but he did have he, he did have some strong opinions. Um, I would say with with. With most people, he was very. But, but wait, Dave. Let me let me interject. Back to idiots and his comments. I had the pleasure of being over at his house on one of the weekends where the grad students came in for a lecture, and it happened to be on Lignin. And Pete started referring in his lecture to those idiots, and I said, "Excuse me, Doctor Van Soost, may I have a moment?" And he says, yes. And I turn to the graduate students and I say, you do know there's a, there's a difference between being an idiot and being ignorant. <laughs> ignorant means you just don't know any better, but you can learn. In this case, idiot is being used in the sense that a person is perceived to be willfully ignorant or refusing to look at other data. Yeah. Well, Dr. Van Soost, please continue. <laughs> the, 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 the real problem there was Peter, and we talk about his legacy. The interesting thing about Peter's chemical knowledge and, and how he applied it was Peter applied chemistry to animal nutrition. And some of the people that he had strong feelings about applied chemistry to plant anatomy, plant characteristics. Mm. And I think because of that, there was kind of just a, a misunderstanding of intent, okay, yeah. that shouldn't have been there. But, you know, by and large, Peter could be, you know, he, he was always relatively mild initially when there was a disagreement in explaining his position. And usually he felt that if he explained his position well enough, he got you converted and that was the end of that. Uh, unless you gave him information that gave him something else to consider, which right, he would. Right. But, yeah. 
the the he 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 had another head knocker with uh, Minson from Australia about silica. I don't know <laughs> if either of you know about this, but um, they had they had this huge controversy. Peter said silica was somewhat like lignin and that it tied up some types of fiber. And Minson said silica is just an inert mineral, and all it does is just dilute out digestibility. And one of my favorite remembrances of Peter giving a lecture was at an International Grassland Congress in Kentucky. And this is a big deal. I mean, it filled up that auditorium 15 minutes before either of these guys were going to speak because everybody knew there was going to be a very interesting set of talks. People are standing in a hall, standing on the aisles, and Minson gave his presentation first, and Peter was second. Well, now, of all the things that Peter could do, handling mechanical things was not one of them, okay? So in this particular presentation, he had a, a slide projector advancing thing in one hand. He had a microphone in the other, and then he had a pointer kind of held with a microphone. And all of them had cords, nothing wireless. So Peter's just getting animated and getting going, and he got himself all wrapped up in these cables. I mean, literally, he was like a puppy dog with tied to a post and got wrapped around. And so right in the middle of his presentation, he just stops, and he stands up, and he goes, like, <laughs> unwinds himself. Well, now, the whole audience just broke out in a roar, okay? Peter turned around and looked like, what's so funny? I had to get myself untangled. And right where he stopped off, he just started again and he finished his talk. But that was Peter. He, When he was thinking about something, there were no distractions, you know. And, and I think that was the other thing that, for me personally, was his intense powers of concentration. I don't know, Mike, did you see that when, when he was like reading or thinking about something? Yeah, no, no. I experienced that several times in the year and a half that we lived together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in the lab. Yeah, he, well, he could be very focused. Your comment about him reading that book fascinated me because he frustrated me because I could never come up with something that he hadn't read already. And I never saw it. him. I never saw him go to the library. OK, I, I, I'm sure he did. <clears throat> Just but, a look at it. But yeah, he 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 was he was a native speed reader he could literally read a page at a time i think and remember everything he read but that your comment about the book struck me because i often thought you know how the heck you know it got to be a game with me trying to find something in the library that he hadn't read already and i did find one thing in a japanese journal that he that and that made my whole stay at cornell that kind of completed it so i can say that i I, I did that, but but the other interesting thing I got to tell about him that I I'm sorry they got lost because I would love to have looked through them. When you worked for the USDA at the time, you were given little green hardbound lab books that you were supposed to record everything every day in. And Peter, being trained as a chemist biochemist, did that. And one of the things he did to me that was frustrating early on is 
I'd come up with an idea that I thought was brilliant. And Peter could go over to that bookshelf, pull one of these books out, open it up to the right page. Yeah. Hey, do you have them? I do. Oh, save them. Cause I, I, I have dearly were, love to read those books. They, they were, they were going in the trash. Oh, Oh no. Oh God. That, thank you, Mike, because I have, I asked Peter about him. He didn't know what happened to him. In fact, he told me he threw him away. And I he thought, did. oh, my oh my God. Because I, yes. Sorry, Dave. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, I'm glad you did because that made my day uh, because I I would love, the first thing I would, I would say to everyone out there, if you've got a chance and you've got even the remotest interest, do read one or two if you can get them. And this is getting to be a problem of Pete's initial papers on development of ADF or NDF and AOAC and the Association of Official Analytical Chemists at the time. But because reading those papers gives you an insight into how he figured out to do what he did, which built on nothing that was done before. Okay. And, but the other thing I wanted to mention before I forget is what really, I think, established Peter as a brilliant mind that was going to change things is he gave a series of symposium papers in Journal of Animal Science in, I think it was 64, 65, and 67. And those papers, in my opinion, should be must-reads by anyone interested in feed evaluation and ruminant nutrition because in most of those symposium papers, he could develop the ideas that we all now use. And it's just interesting to read them to see how he was thinking at the time and how he had already kind of put it all together. And I, I, put, I put those papers in that list at the Cornell Nutrition Conference, but I, for grad students particularly, to me, they're must-reads because it shows the, the thinking and how he started putting it all together. And I think that was the other thing I would say about Peter. We, we grad students used to sit around and try to figure out what made him so unique. And, and his, his brilliance and his knowledge was a part of it. We were all fascinated how he could remember so much stuff. Okay. But what was really interesting about him was that he put it all together in his own head. As Mike referred to this, he, he, he kind of had a mental picture of how things should fit together. And when he read something new, he plugged it into that. So that mental picture just kept expanding. But what was fascinating about him is if you raised a question about a part of that mental picture over here, he could start right there and just give you a lecture. Okay you know, teach you about it. But we all kind of decided that that's what made him so special is that he, he understood it. He tried to make it all fit together rather than just knowing bits and pieces. So uh, I'm sorry I'm talking too much, but he, he well, was a fascinating person in that regard. And very few people can do that. The, the thing that I'd add to that is that he could take any of the pieces of information and would be intrigued by puzzles and how we could apply them. Is Does this show up reasonably well? Your rumen? Yeah. Okay. What this is, is a piece of chrome tanned rumen leather. 
And there are pieces still over at Cornell uh, down in one of the teaching labs, Mike? I think so. Some of okay. it, yeah, I, there's, there's pieces of things like that all over the place, but I don't know if there's any chromium pieces left. Oh, okay, what happened was when I was a grad student and I was a TA, um, you know, how do you teach undergraduates what's going on in the room and when it's a, when you can't get there from here, basically? I mean, how do you make it real for the students? And so I talked with Pete and he told me he would try to make leather. And so he ended up making leather out of, excuse me, reticulum with the honeycomb. He made it out of part of the rumen. So you have all the papillae. I've got no mesal leaf over there. These are spare pieces left over um, after we put the rest into a case to go down in a teaching lab. But I mean, here you have Van Seuss getting this weird question out of left field and devoting himself, going to the library and getting books on how you tan leather and taking his knowledge of how to work with chromium, which he'd worked with the chromium mordant of NDF to be used as a marker and applying it to do this. You know, his, his ability to, to take on new challenges and be delighted by them and apply his knowledge in all sorts of weird and funky ways to get at what you wanted was remarkable. And it was fun. Um, we, we had these pieces um, tacked out on a board with meat's foot oil on them so we could get them in a decent shape so that they'd preserve. You know, we were, when he was gonna give his talk on the nutritional ecology of dinosaurs, his lab was also the place where we made a dinosaur head to go with somebody who was gonna play the dinosaur at one of his lectures. Um, and he had fun with it. And he very much thought he needed a dinosaur to attend his lecture. So yeah, he was special. Yeah, special, I'd say very, very special and uh, unconventional. But I have to tell you all about the, a rat story. Peter had that pet rat in his sure. office at, uh, at the USDA. And the story I heard was when he moved, okay, uh, he, the people that helped him move found government checks that he had never cashed that were the old punch card checks, you know, don't staple, mutilize, bend. And the rat had chewed on them and they had to reissue him a whole bunch of checks that he never cashed, which kind of leaves you understand how much his personal finances were important to him compared to his research. But uh, it's just one more thing to kind of tell you a little bit about the person. Um, and he was fortunate that he did have some people. And in the case of Cornell, I think an institution that allowed him to be who he was. And I'm not sure, unfortunately, I'm not sure we can do that. He could do that today. Uh, I'm curious. Yes. I know we're getting a long, a long uh, a bit long here, but how much do we know about his early life, his childhood, and what was he like then? I, I can only imagine uh, what it might have been like to have him as a child. He shared his, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll speak quickly here. He shared a story with me once. This was where I, this is where I began to learn. So early in his life, um, he had this mental capacity that we're all talking about. It was uh, something that developed. It was there. And um, his parents knew it. His dad knew it. 
um, he an aunt an aunt, I think aunt, it was aunt yeah had given him a series of uh, encyclopedias no uncle justin or uncle yeah uncle justin gave him the uh, yeah i couldn't remember gave him the uh, encyclopedias which he did what we just talked about he read them but he not only read them he integrated them and memorized them and he would correct his eighth grade teachers when they were wrong <laughs> And that would not sit well with the teachers and his parents heard about it and his dad, his, his parents recognized, and this just continued, right? And, in, in, and he, he told me this one day uh, at What's Your Beef over several pitchers of beer with some tears, actually. You know, this was one of those very human moments of Pete where he was telling me how hard it was to be him and to be that different and how early in his life that this because I had asked him some of the questions. I asked him, Pete, how do you do this? <laughs> and he, he went right back to this story and, and relayed this story to me over, I don't know how many pictures of beer we drank, but uh, very coherent, um, many hours of this discussion. And he obviously, you know, and this is one of the most human moments that I remember of him, that and, and something that, that I could share later. But um, he was holding my hand as he told me this, and he was crying. And he said, I've always been different because I had this ability to do things and nobody ever understood me, even at a young age. And he goes, and his parents recognized that. And that's when they said, you know, you're not going to be a farmer. You're not going to hang here. You have to go get some more education. You've got to go figure out who you are. Right. And, and they promoted that. And, you know, and he always was good at the arts. He, he always he knew how to paint. He learned how to do all sorts of things. So but it started very early that this this person that he became was basically innate from from birth amazing person uh guys i've enjoyed uh tonight that's uh we're we're well over an hour now and it feels like 10 minutes uh but i think it's time to call last call and and, and with that what i'd like uh, each of you to do is to um share two things you know um how do you see dr van seuss legacy living on in the future generations one and then what would he want to say to young students who are just starting out their careers in animal agriculture? Our last call question is sponsored by AminoSure XM Precision Release Methionine, the next generation in amino acid balancing. With AminoSure XM, you can save up to $0.05 cents per cow per day on your methionine investment. Try it today and receive an additional $0.2.5 cents per cow per day savings with Belchem's limited-time rebate offer. Contact your Belchem representative to learn more. And why don't we start with Mary Beth? You're up in the upper right corner or upper left corner. I, I think his legacy that, I mean, for, for grad students, for, for going forward, kind of goes back to, to not resting on laurels. I mean, the last paper that we worked on um, is one on Clasan lignin versus acid detergent lignin. There was a glimmer there that maybe... NDF digestibility is an apparent analysis. And it was an intriguing discussion with him. And, and so part of his legacy would be here. This is the best we've got. It may be the best we'll ever have. But keep looking for options that might help us get better and, and have them well grounded in good science, good chemistry, good analysis and such. Um, your second your second question to me? What to <laughs> You're say not to do what, ah, to what to say to a new, new grad student? What to say to a new grad student? 
Yeah, what would he want to say just with their just starting out their career? What advice would he give them? I think it would, might go back to something that Dave was talking about earlier. It, it's it's diving in and finding questions that haven't been well addressed, or even if maybe we think they have been, and, and see where you go. But but again, think about it, make sure it makes sense, and see what you pursue. Thank you for that. Dave? Well, I, I think his, his legacy is certainly going to be all of the concepts that he has gotten us to think about in addition to the chemistry that he's taught us that's been useful. Um, and I think sometimes I dwell a little bit on the chemistry because to me it's so fascinating because it was so different. But he, he was a person of thought in terms of concepts, of ideas. And uh, that's the reason why I would encourage you people to read his book, to read his papers, because it's the ideas that's probably going to push us forward uh, and going to be his real legacy. And uh, he, he would want us to do that. He would want us to, to build. Uh, the other thing um, I think is that we need to think a little bit more in terms of translational research, how to take ideas from a different branch and apply it to our branch. I mean, what made Pete so special was the fact that he knew chemistry and biochemistry and physical chemistry. He also understood nutrition and he made those two things come together. And I don't think we do enough of that. We're, I, I tell the story that I, we're getting so specialized, we know more and more about less and less until we're going to know everything about nothing. Uh, and <laughs> Pete would have been exact opposite of that, okay? That's, that's not the way his brain worked. Uh, in terms of what he would tell a new grad student, uh, Pete was not one to give advice, but um, what he taught me by doing I think was a couple of things. He wanted you to think deeply. He wanted you to read widely. Okay. Uh, and I think those were the things that he taught me without telling me that probably are things that he would want to stress to a new grad student. Uh, Peter, Peter was interesting in that he loved to take an idea and trace it backward as well as take it forward. Uh, he, he, he would take it and find it out where this idea started. And he taught me to do that. And I've always found that fascinating because what was amazing to me is I could find somebody in 1892 that came up with an idea that we're working on today and 90% of what they thought at the time was still right today. It's like, and so I think Peter would, would say, you know, delve into a topic deeply, do a lot of reading and, and do a lot of, you know, think independently, look at the data, draw your own conclusions. That would probably be the way Peter would, would say it. Yeah. Thank you. Clay, any final words from you? Yes, I've I, I found this uh, this very fascinating, and uh, I really I want to thank um, Dave and Mary Beth for the in memoriam that uh, that came out in the Journal of Dairy Science. That that was very well done. So thank you, thank you for the opportunity of doing this. Yeah, you're very welcome. This has been fun. 
Mike, any final words? Yeah, I'll just summarize it by saying I, I think his legacy is is teaching us his legacy is is the thought process, how to think. I, and everybody said that already, but really, um, and I think that's one of the hardest parts about his legacy, Scott, since you asked that question. Nobody reads the same way today. At least the current, gen- back to the students, right? I'm going to try to integrate my answers here in the interest of time. Boy, our, our current, you know, I make my students read. Um, I make my students take PCHEM, right, David? And and um, the, 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 my concern is for his legacy and it's what Dave, it's what everybody laid out here. Peter had a tremendous thought process. And it wasn't whether you were right or wrong. It's just what did you learn in the process of thinking through all of that? And what could you find for evidence, right? And if you found the evidence, it wouldn't matter if that person said, no way that's ever going to happen. Because if you could think your way through it and say, no, here's how I find the evidence and I can show you this, then by golly, that's, we're, now we're learning and now we're, we're making change. And I think when it comes to the students, he would encourage them to do the same thing. The problem is, is that it's really hard to teach that in the Google generation, <laughs> right? Yeah. We, we want an answer. We want it quick. Uh, but how we got there, you know, Pete's, D- Dave referenced 1882 or 1892, 1892. Well, the Einhoff papers from 1806, and it's written from in high German and Peter read it and Einhoff was probably the first guy to actually develop NDF and he did it mechanically on potatoes, right? And Pete read the darn paper from 1806 and said, this is probably what I need to replicate, but I need to do it chemically, right? I can't, we can't do this mechanically, right? And so, so yeah, so it's learning how to think. And for the students, the other thing I'll say, and, and from a student perspective, and I think this is one of the things that Dave and I have lamented this one doing chemistry. There's very few labs doing feed chemistry anymore, real feed chemistry. Um, So that's kind of becoming a lost art. We're leaving it up to the commercial labs and the students have no idea what the hell assay was run and why it was run. The age of statistics. Um, (laughs) uh, We're seeing one hell of a lot of statistical nutrition. Um, A lot. And that he would rail against that, right? Because yep. it doesn't follow his tenet of what can you recover, what can you show, what what did you have left, right? The back to Curly Lucas, the uniform fractions, the, the concept of nutritional uniformity. This is ninety-eight percent digestible, this is zero percent digestible, and R squared of zero is is informative. <laughs> right? I'll always remember him telling us that. So, so that kind of stuff, Scott, is, is I think that's a hard part of his legacy. And I'm very concerned that we're going to lose that because we've moved to big, big data. We don't question the biology. We just, you know, if we can put enough data together, we can run enough equations through some R code with a mixed model. And by golly, we're going to learn something new. Uh, and that, that is the antithetical aspect of a Pete Van Seuss approach. Right. So that's, so that's what we've got to stay away from. Great answer to end on Mike, uh, Mary Beth, Dave, Mike, I've enjoyed this immensely. This has been a lot of fun. I want to thank you for sharing your memories and your stories. Uh, Dr. Van Seuss contributions to this industry will be remembered and referenced for many years to come. So uh, I thank you guys for, for coming and, and doing this and sharing your your stories again. I also want to thank our loyal listeners. We hope you enjoyed this as much as we did. 
and we'll see you next time here at the Real Science Exchange where it's always happy hour and you're always among friends. We'd love to hear your comments or ideas for topics and guests. So please reach out via email to anh.marketing at balchem.com with any suggestions and we'll work hard to add them to the schedule. Don't forget to leave a five-star rating on your way out. You can request your Real Science Exchange t-shirt in just a few easy steps. Just like or subscribe to the Real Science Exchange and send us a screenshot along with your address and t-shirt size to anh.marketing at balchem.com. Balchem's Real Science Lecture Series of webinars continues with ruminant-focused topics on the first Tuesday of every month, monogastric-focused topics on the second Tuesday of each month, and quarterly topics for the companion animal segment. Visit balchem.com slash real science to see the latest schedule and to register for upcoming webinars.